0: Most people will say like, I don't want to go into a sewer. I don't, you know, I'm scared of caves, which is fine. I, I would say that that going into a cave and spending some time there is something that will completely change the way you think about yourself and the world. But, you know, I tend to be biased and kind of an evangelist for, for darkness. And, and I know that not everyone's into that.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off-topic. Today I talk with author Will Hunt, who wrote a book called Underground, A Human History of the Worlds Beneath Our Feet. This is, in essence, a travel book about subterranean places, and it wasn't until I read it that I realized I've always been bewitched by underground adventures, places like caves and tunnels, from the salt mines of central Kansas to the catacombs of Paris to the tombs of the Holy Land. In fact, reading Will Hunt's book made me realize that one of the first travel memoirs I wrote back when I was 15 years old was about an underground adventure. I was in Hadley Junior High School in Wichita at the time. My friends and I had discovered and explored a network of plumbing tunnels underneath the school, and we would sneak out of class and wander around in them in the middle of the day. When that school year finished, I wrote a 3,000-word essay about my adventures there, I wrote about how we found the tunnels through the hatches in the school's exit years, and how we crept in and explored them when we should have been in class studying. The tunnels were very dark, I wrote. Cement walls with a gritty floor. They were lined with rusty sheet metal, and we had to hunch when we walked and whisper when we talked. Reading these details from my journal all these years later, I can't quite make sense of what exactly it was that we did down there, but I can still feel the thrilled sense of mystery and excitement we felt when we were down there, No one could take away the experience we had in the tunnels, I wrote. I actually tried to go back to my old junior high and revisit the tunnels to record this introduction, but my request resulted in this response.
0: Good morning, Mr. Potts. In regards to your request to use Hadley Middle School for your podcast at this time, it's been denied. Any further requests need to be addressed directly to USD 259 to be approved.
1: I think this response underscores how going into underground places is rarely something you do with formal permission. I think part of what made going into those school tunnels so thrilling as a teenager is that we were doing something that was against the rules, something we had to undertake in secret. Will Hunt's book has its origins in his own youth when he snuck in and explored an abandoned train tunnel that went under his neighborhood in Providence. It's the sort of mysterious energy that fueled the adventures he writes about in his book, from urban exploration in the New York City subway tunnels to traversing Paris by its sewers and catacombs to going two miles under the surface of the earth in the Dakota Badlands. We talk about what these adventures were like and what he found down there. We also talk about how common these underground passages are and how you may well be living in a place full of underground spaces that no one really knows about, We talk about getting lost underground and finding life underground and how underground rituals have always influenced human culture. This discussion really captured my imagination for reasons that no doubt go back to my junior high tunnel adventures and beyond. If by chance you wanted to plan an around-the-world trip to explore iconic underground spaces, say the Paris catacombs and the Salt Mine Cathedral in Colombia and the Ochre Mines of Australia, You can do so with the help of my sponsor, Airtrex, which is a great way to save money on round-the-world and multi-stop flight itineraries. Check out their flight planning tools at Airtrex.com and plug in your dream trip to see what I'm talking about. This episode is also brought to you by Tortuga, who makes backpacks and backpack accessories for the vagabonding traveler. Check out a variety of Tortuga backpacks and backpack accessories to choose from at rolfpotts.com slash tortuga. And in fact, you can save 10% at checkout simply by accessing the site via rolfpots.com slash tortuga, so be sure to use that link when you visit. All right, here's Will Hunt and I talking about the intoxicating experience of exploring underground places and how, in my experience, it's a fascination that goes back to those days of sneaking into school tunnels back in junior high. Your book is a travel book of sorts, and it really covers a lot of places around the world, but in a way that most travel books don't in that it goes underground in these places around the world. And it goes into caves and tombs and tunnels and sort of meditates on what these places have to teach us. And it occurs to me when I was reading your book that a lot of my most memorable travel experiences have happened in underground places. You know, the catacombs, which you ca- talk about in your book, but there's also the salt cathedral in Colombia, which is this giant church that's in a salt mine. Uh, there's the labyrinth in, in Budapest, which connects these old tunnels under a castle in a way that's that's sort of bewitching. Here in Kansas, where I'm based, there's Stratica, which is a salt mine where Hollywood and, and a lot of foreign governments store their records because it's so dry. Hmm. Um, and I've been to the Monastery of the Temptation in, uh, in Israel, for example. I slept there, and it was just it was one of the more interesting nights of my life to sleep in a cave uh, that had religious significance back in the day. And in your book, you say, As visual creatures, we forget about the underground. We are surfaced chauvinists. Our most celebrated explorers venture out and up. We have skipped across the moon, guided rovers into Martian volcanoes, and charted electromagnetic storms in distant outer space inner space has never been so accessible. Geologists believe that more than half of the world's caves are undiscovered, buried deep in the impenetrable crust. If the surface of the earth were transparent, we'd spend days on our bellies peering down into the marvelous layered terrain. Uh, But for us surface dwellers, the underground has always been invisible. Uh, So why write a book about the underground?
0: I have been thinking about the underground since I was a teenager. As the story goes, when I was 16 years old, I discovered an abandoned train tunnel that ran directly beneath my home in Providence, Rhode Island, and just became obsessed with it. It was the most mysterious alien space situated beneath the most familiar place in my life at the time. And I have um it sort of opened this bolt in my imagination and i have sort of followed that that ethic all over the world that that beneath beneath anywhere you look beneath anywhere you happen to be standing on the planet there is something strange and mysterious and magical beneath your feet
1: i think there might be s- this desire this interest in the underworld might be pegged to youth because I've had some some similar experiences and I'll share a couple of them. Uh, but you you say in the book I, I came to love the underground for its silence and for its echoes. I love that even the briefest trip into a tunnel or a cave felt like an escape into a parallel reality. The way characters in children's book vanish through portals into secret worlds. And you know, as you were talking about your relationship with that abandoned train tunnel in Providence I realized that I had a big imaginative relationship with underground places when I was young. Um, And in fact, when I was in junior high, uh, some friends and I found that there was a plumbing tunnel under the school. And at about 10 points over the course of our ninth grade year, we would sneak under the school and walk around. And I, being the nerd that I was, I wrote a retrospective of my ninth grade Small. year, and and like two thousand of the ten thousand words were about being in this tunnel. You know, despite my my girlfriends and all the social things and all the sports things, I spent a full fifth of my of my journal writing about these tunnels. Um, and you know, my friends and I thought that maybe there was a quarter mile tunnel that goes to an elementary school uh, on the same property. We spray painted our names under there, and it really, really captured. My fascination. So do you reckon there is, are we sort of born with instincts for being fascinated with underground places?
0: So first of all, I love that story. And, and since this book came out, it came out uh, last February, I guess. Um, I've been you know traveling around and giving talks and, and readings and things. And everywhere I go, people stop me and share their own version of the story you just told. I think it's it's I think it's totally inbred. We have this this um, this impulse, especially as as children when we're kind of just discovering just starting to move through the world and to understand it to to explore I think um, it's you know i get I got an email from a, a man in his seventies who was talking about how when he was you know, 15 years old, um, growing up in Paris, he spent the most sort of imaginatively rich days of his life exploring the catacombs under the city, um, and and it, you know, it's coming from all over. Um, so yeah, I think there is this this uh, this deeply wired impulse to to explore, and it's often manifest in in um, in slipping underground. The thing is when you're it, the underground is sort of the ultimate manifestation of of uh, hiddenness of of places you, you can't see so to to slip into a, a, a tunnel even if it's directly beneath your neighborhood or beneath your school it feels like you're stepping into another plane of reality um, even if you're only a couple feet from from this very sort of well known territory
1: that that idea really resonates with what I read in my old journals from from ninth grade just because, I, it, we went down there about ten times, and only once did we bring girls, <laughs> but when we brought right. girls, you would think that like fifteen year olds would be all excited about the girls' part. We were actually looking for this tunnel to Bryant elementary school that that actually it was the unknown that was more interesting than anything else, just the idea that that this dark place might yield you know treasures and and tunnels that we didn't know were there and you know, as I was reading about your chapter about New York and the subway explorations there it it occurred to me that there is. A trend of urban exploration. does I don't know a lot about it, but does it does it often involve tunnels and things like that?
0: Oh, absolutely. So so my story is that that a few years after that um, that that or the early trips into the the tunnel under Providence, I was living in New York, where I discovered an entire community of tunnel enthusiasts who were known as urban explorers. Um, And there were this this kind of loose group of people who had dedicated their their lives to to breaking into infrastructure under the city. Um, Some of them were artists, some were photographers, some were historians. And I I just fell absolutely in love with them right away. Um, They they were so amazing because they could they sort of saw New York in a way that no one else did. They had all they had access to all the sort of secrets of the city um, they they like knew where all the the subterranean rivers were and these these old abandoned bunkers and they just sort of knew everything um, and so it was through them that i started poking around in in subway tunnels and in sewers and finding these abandoned subway stations which are known as ghost stations so through them I sort of started thinking about the built environment in new ways. And then I discovered that they were there were tribes of urban explorers in cities all over the world. Um, wherever you are in any city, you will find groups of people kind of pushing pushing to explore the unseen layers of the city.
1: You know, it's it's interesting. I live in in rural Kansas, or I'm based in rural Kansas when I'm not traveling. And there was just an article in the local newspaper about how, underneath the theater in downtown Salina, Kansas, which is the closest town of size to where I live, there's these old like vaudeville era tunnels and chambers underneath the theater uh, that ba- date back to the vaudeville era. And it just it just fascinates me that there's sort of an underground iteration of almost every place in the world. Now, in Uh, In Paris, you have an official tour of the catacombs, and we'll get to the catacombs in a second. But I'm curious to know, is there there like a tourist version of exploration in New York City, or is it all sort of off the grid?
0: It's Well, officially speaking, it's all off the grid. There are tourist groups that you can go down into certain abandoned subway stations with, and we have a, a station in New York, that is beneath city hall. That was the first station ever built in the city, um, 1904. And it is, it's a really beautiful space. It's got these arched ceilings and, and tiled walls. And at the time it was opened, it had a, there was a, a a woman playing piano down there in in an aquarium with fish. It was like their way of, uh, sort of advertising the subway. This was people, In 1904, it was their sort of first interaction with the underground for most of them. Um, and so that subway station is no longer in use, but you can you can arrange a tour of that space, which is sort of interesting. But for the most part, um, most of the stuff that I was doing when I was young in New York City uh, was illegal. Um, and so you but but it's still possible to do Um you just have to sort of align yourself with some of the, the knowledgeable urban explorers who if you're patient with them will, will take you and introduce you to some of these uh, extraordinary spaces.
1: Is there an initiation ritual? Do you need to like crawl on your knees through sewage or anything or, or you just ingratiate yourself with a veteran?
0: Um, I don't think there's an, an official initiation ritual. I think that you have to prove to them that you're serious The way I did it, um, I I just started going down alone into a lot of the, I started running live subway tracks, um, and there's a a tunnel that runs beneath the Upper West Side of Manhattan called the Freedom Tunnel, which is where the Amtrak tunnels, or Amtrak trains run. Mm -hmm. And I just started taking walks down that tunnel. Um, It's a very beautiful space, it continues to be my, favorite space in all of New York city. Um, it's just sort of this big voluminous cathedral like tunnel that runs for about three miles, I think. Um, and it has grates in the ceiling. So during the day, um, you have these shafts of sunlight coming down. Um, it's just a, a stunning space. So I started taking those trips on my own. And then when I started running into urban explorers, I told them that I had, you know, I uh, already cut my teeth a little bit, and they they sort of respected that and slowly began to show me um, more and more uh, exclusive, harder-to-see, dangerous spaces, um, but it took a long time.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things that you found when you're under underground, another kind of mystery of underground New York, is a graffiti artist called Revs, I guess, who sort of would keep a diary of his life on the walls of these underground spaces. Tell us a little bit about this guy and, and how you eventually came to meet him.
0: So Revs, Revs was sort of my first underground love. Um, he was a, a, a graffiti writer, as you said, in the 80s and 90s. He was the most prolific graffiti writer in the city um, and was known when, when Mayor... Uh, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani um, took over. He was sort of uh, public enemy number one as far as graffiti goes. Hmm. Um, And then so during the early 90s, uh, he stopped painting above ground as Rudy was chasing him and began this project where he started writing his autobiography on the walls of subway tunnels. Um, sort of between platforms, so in the dark spaces where no one ever goes. He would, uh, late at night, uh, slip, slip down into the subway, prop up a ladder on the tracks, um, put up a 5 by 12 foot swath of white or yellow paint, and then, with a spray can, write a, a little vignette uh, from his childhood or a little... Philosophical rumination, um, and when I was first spending time in New York and first starting to explore, I would I, I did this thing where I would ride the subway and just have my my forehead glued to the window, so I could see um, uh, abandoned subway platforms as they passed, hmm. and I was you know making little maps of where all the the, the ghost stations were. But as I did that, I started seeing these sort of panels of paint that were covered in writing, flicker flicker in and out of the frames of the, the subway car window, and slowly I put together this was this was the the, uh, the work of Revs, um, and so I set out to I first set out to meet him. Um, I really wanted to just talk to this this man who had dedicated seven years of his life to, to writing his life story in a place no one could where no one could see it I mean why, why would someone do that? Um, and I quickly found that he was he was uh, kind of a ghost he was um, you know all graffiti writers are sort of elusive and lead kind of cloaked lives because what they're doing is is illegal but revs more than anyone, was um completely inaccessible um he kind of lived off the grid somewhere people everyone knew knew about him because he was so legendary but no one no one knew how to get in touch with him so i kind of gave up trying to meet him and began began um exploring the subway tunnels in order to read his read his diary in person you know as as he would have intended Um, so I spent years and years running, running subways and, uh, finding his, you know, pages of his diary, uh, under the city. There are 235 pages, um, one between almost any two subway stations in the whole city. Um, it's just an extraordinary piece of, piece of art. Um, and I had kind of, you know, every once in a while I would, I would pick up the, attempts to meet him again and would give up because it just wasn't going to happen. And then one day I was working in a, I was writing in a cafe near where I live at the time and started talking to the owner of the cafe who said, you know, he had grown up in this this neighborhood of Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, which is where Revs had grown up. And, you know, the owner of the cafe was telling all these stories about his childhood And I said, you know, I spent some time in Bay Ridge looking for this guy that I was obsessed with. He's this graffiti writer. He wrote his life story in the tunnels. And the owner of the cafe says, do you mean Revs? Hmm. I know Revs. I went to school with Revs. So through that, I was able to have a a pizza dinner with Revs and a few other um, painters and graffiti artists. And so I was able to meet this, this extraordinary man um and he was he was as mysterious as you would imagine um and as tight-lipped about his project as you would imagine um but just to talk to him a little bit about what what drew him down there uh was was really special um and he sort of the, the most he would say is that he wanted to he wanted to paint in order to last forever You know, so much of when you're a graffiti artist, so much of what you paint is above ground and it gets buffed or wiped away by by rain and weather. Um, And but when you paint underground, you're you know, he has pages from his diary from 1993 that are still pristine in the tunnels. So I just love this idea of, of, you know, this man going underground in order to achieve a kind of immortality.
1: It sounds like Revs is really a unique character from this underground culture that's in New York. And I want to get to the underground culture of Paris in a second, because you write about it and I'm fairly familiar with it. But I'm curious to know, are there any other cities in the world that compare with New York or Paris in terms of underground culture and underground opportunities like this?
0: You know, surprisingly, yes. Hmm. I... um, the city of Moscow, for example, is extraordinary for its underground systems. Um, I I spent a lot of time um, exploring with with uh, what are called diggers in Moscow, urban explorers in Moscow are called diggers, um, and they have they have systems under the city that that just sprawl. There's you know I've heard people say that there are 12 layers of of infrastructure beneath Moscow, um, but you know it's honestly it's everywhere. It's any city of age that has sort of built itself up over over centuries is going to have these, this sort of cat's cradle of of tunnels and hollow spaces uh, beneath the surface. And so you know I could have <laughs> I could have written a book just about different cities in the world. That, you know, it would have gotten maybe a little bit repetitive because uh, a lot of the stories begin to resemble one another. But it's the the, the stories are there and there are these communities of people who are who are exploring these spaces and and documenting them. There are people uh, who are living in these spaces Um, in New York. I, I spent some time with the mole people, which is the name given to these to a, a community of homeless people who, who lived in the, the Freedom Tunnel, which runs on, under the Upper West Side, um, and you find that everywhere, you know, any, any, any big city has, uh, has subterranean spaces that are inhabited by kind of marginalized uh, people who, who don't fit in on the surface.
1: Yeah, I'm curious to know if any of our listeners, just email me if you've explored underneath your own city, because I think that's really intriguing. And maybe this could be a pretext for some of our listeners to peek under a few manholes and and see what's underneath their city. You know, I was when I was in Moscow, I was amazed by how deep the subways were, that those subways were built as sort of a nuclear deterrent, I think. and, And that was the limit of my underground exploration of Moscow. But it is a really intoxicating feeling to be that deep underground in Moscow.
0: Absolutely, yeah. The the story in Moscow that um, that I have always loved is that there is a there is a, a a government subway system that is said to run deep beneath the pedestrian subway system. It's known as Metro Two, and no one is sure that it is, exists, but everyone is is fairly sure that it exists. That no one has actually seen it but everyone uh, talks about it as though it's, it's, it absolutely exists. Um, so that's it's, it's interesting. I spent some time in Moscow interviewing people about, about Metro 2.
1: I love that phrase, not sure if it exists, because that's exactly what had so transfixed us underneath my junior high school in 1986, the The idea that maybe this tunnel to the elementary school existed. And so that feels like part of the draw of being in this place is, is, that, is the mystery and the surprise. And uh, speaking of this, I, I want to touch on the, Parisian, the Paris catacombs, because... That's actually a tourist attraction. You can go to the catacombs and there's some interpretive information under there. You can see the skulls that are uh, arranged that uh, apparently there's like six million dead Parisians underneath the city in the catacombs. Uh, But beyond the officially sanctioned tourist version of the catacombs, which I would recommend to anybody, the line is really long, but it's worth seeing, there are there are hundreds of kilometers uh, of tunnels underneath the city and you write uh, to wander through the catacombs is to feel yourself inside of a mystery novel full of false walls and trap doors and secret chutes, each leading to another hidden chamber containing another surprise and I you know I know the catacombs well enough to know that that's that's very true I mean they have parties underneath uh the city of Paris in the catacombs they have Basically, art installations, and you can find old Nazi area era orientation graffiti, as opposed, and also very modern graffiti under there. Uh, and you actually went across Paris underground in the catacombs. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that experience. So,
0: first of all, I love that you have done some exploring down there. It's it's a it's one of my favorite places in the world. Um, so, in 2013, I believe. Um, a group of urban explorers from, from New York City um, and myself uh, plotted this, this mission where we were going to try to walk from one edge of Paris to the other using only um, subterranean infrastructure. So we would start in the on the southern edge of the city in uh, Port d'Orléans and enter the catacombs, which, as you said, uh, sprawl for about 200 miles under the city. Um, and then we would make our way through the the, the catacombs uh, until the the edge of the Seine, basically. Um, and the idea was to get under the Seine and then um, to to climb into the sewers. After that, and then you know, if all went well, we would uh, emerge from, from the sewers, uh, beyond the Northern edge of the city, um, at Porte de Clichy. And so it took us, we, we, we made it, it took us 39 hours, I believe. Hmm. Um, we camped for, we went, we went into the catacombs late, uh, late one night in June, um, and ended up so we had two nights camping, one night camping in the catacombs and, um, in an old sort of big chamber there with, um, where we had hammocks set up and, um, and, and then made our way under the Seine and popped into the sewers where we kind of, um, uh, tiptoed down the, the catwalk and tried not to, to slip and slide into the, the flow of, of sewage running down the, the middle of the sewer, sewer collector. And then, um, after, after many, many hours, we emerged through a, a, a manhole just outside the Northern edge at the, in front of a, an old Turkish restaurant. Um, it was about midday, a uh, busy street people, <laughs> the whole world stopped to watch the six of us climb out of the, the underground, just like covered in, all sorts of uh uh (laughs) fluids and you could see people (laughs) going through that you know trying to figure out if they were disgusted or fascinated um but you could see people kind of gathering around the manhole and peering down into the underground um you know full of full of wonder but also a little repulsion which is sort of a microcosm of how We react to the underground. This is a a landscape of, um, you know, our it contains our our deepest, most primal terrors, uh, but has always lured us. It always has these these enchantments um, and has transfixed transfixed us throughout history.
1: I think one of the there's a lot of great stories that sort of attach themselves to the catacombs of Paris. One of my favorites that, I, that you t- mentioned in your book is of Philibert Philiber Asper, I think is the way you pronounce his name, I'm not sure, but- That's right. I've, I've been teaching a class uh, in the Latin quarter for about 15 years every summer. And I was telling my sp- uh, students about Philibert Asper because he was in a monastery that's very close to the American Academy where I teach. And he basically went underground to, get, to fetch some wine uh, that had been stored in the catacombs and he got lost. And like 11 years later, they found his body there and um, apocryphal or not, there's actually a monument to him underneath the city, which is not very far from where I teach my classes. And you actually touch on the idea that it's actually really easy to get lost underground and it's actually very difficult to map and navigate underground. Um, So during your adventures, have you ever been or felt deeply lost? And how have humans made sense of getting around underground over the years?
0: So that is that to me is one of the the sort of great points of magic about going into an underground space which is that you you go from this the surface world where everything is sunlit and where we have these amazing kind of inbuilt navigational systems in our in our hippocampus that that keep us tethered to 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 you know reality and then you you slide through a, a manhole and suddenly all of our all of our navigation uh, abilities vanish and so you're completely disoriented um you you the moment you step under the ground you're effectively lost um i i had one <laughs> um extreme bout of lostness in the catacombs in paris on a completely a separate trip um, many years before the the trip across the city. Um, I was going into the catacombs for the first time alone, or first time without a a guide. Um, The experts of the the catacombs are known as cataphiles, like catacomb lover. Um, And so this is my first time kind of navigating uh, where I would be the leader of a, a, a small group. I was with two friends. And we we slipped underground in the same the same entrance that that we used to uh, cross the city uh, many years later, and I we we basically enter this this sort of sprawling uh, root like maze, and the first possible turn, um, you can turn north and go into a part of the catacombs that is that. Is sort of populated that will have people uh, kind of gathering you'll you'll see a lot of graffiti you'll see um, actual signposts on the walls that that can help you orient um, We did have a map which has been compiled by cataphiles over the years so at this first intersection I turned right south into a part of the catacombs that is that is uh, completely, Uh, empty and derelict and um, didn't realize I had made the mistake for for almost an hour. So so we at that point found ourselves deeply deeply lost um, and we were lost for the next eight hours um, as we tried to find our way back to the entrance. And the only way we were able to do that is by um, it was a, it was a, 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 in the middle of winter. Uh, so the air, the air temperature on the surface was extremely cold while the, um, the catacombs maintain a temperature of about 60 degrees, um, year round. So we started to realize that certain tunnels we entered as we were trying to retrace our steps and ultimately failing because everything looked alike. And, um, trying not to panic, and trying, you know, my, the two friends I was with were uh, mercifully very patient with me and didn't start yelling at me, even though they definitely could have. Um, we started to notice that some of these tunnels were colder than other tunnels, so we we were able to find our way back to the entrance by following the cold air, um, kind of like an Ariadne's thread uh, through the through the maze. Um, and so we emerged at around 4 a.m., uh, kind of drinking in wintry air and just relieved to be alive.
1: You talk about a guy, a 48-year-old guy, who was in an underground mushroom farm for like a month and had to survive by eating mud?
0: That's right. Um, he's a this is a Frenchman, um, uh, I believe in the south of France, in a, a place called Madirant. And he... Um, his last name is Joshua Verge and he um, decided to to kind of go for a walk in, in an abandoned mushroom farm uh, that had been an old quarry before before it was a mushroom farm. And um, he drove it the, the entrance was very large. He drove his truck through the entrance and and got out. And he had been drinking a little bit and um, and just kind of stumbled into the dark. Um, and immediately lost his shoes and so he's barefoot now and then his 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 um batteries and his flashlight died so now he's in pitch darkness with no shoes and he just got completely lost and i, I believe he was underground for 34 days everyone in the village assumed that he he was dead and um uh at, you know, a, 34 days later, a, um, a, a group of, of teenagers who were cutting school um, came, you know, decided to go explore the mushroom farm and found his car and uh, realized that they needed to call the police. Police came up and they started doing a search through through the mushroom farm and they found, they found Joshua Verge, totally haggard. Uh, he'd lost a lot of weight. He had this long beard, but he was alive and he had kept himself alive by, by eating, eating wood, little pieces of wood that the mushroom farmers had left behind and drinking, uh, water that was coming from the walls. Um, it's just an extraordinary story of survival. Um, but what, what, fascinated me about his story is that so you know he emerges and um they the the press descend upon him and people start calling him the miracle of darkness and he's he's like a tabloid hero for a brief moment in time but he would talk about these kinds of like these like moments where he would slip into a kind of ecstatic state um he described walking through the 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 tunnels, um, completely lost and, and singing to himself, um, and, and people were kind of mystified by what he was talking about, but, but it was something that really sort of inspired me. And it's something that, that you, you find, uh, you find evidence of all over the world. People, um, people entering a state of profound lostness and where they're totally disconnected from, from normal reality where, where the, the part of their brain that, that would normally uh, connect them to a you know, familiar landscape is, is basically spinning. And they attain a kind of altered state of consciousness. Um, and and I, I think that's what kind of was going on with, with uh, Joshua Verge. Um, and that's why I sort of love that story.
1: Yeah, well I want to get to the spiritual aspects of being underground in a second but it it occurs to me in this context that being underground is sort of like time travel, you know, in, in an age where we're really saturated with information and so much visual stimulation that going underground even for a short time is sort of like going to another epoch or maybe even something that that isn't quite so historical as sort of mystical that you really turn off that visual sense and your other senses sort of come alive.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I think of I, I absolutely think of going underground as a, as a form of time travel. Um, I, I've, I've spent all this this time exploring caves and tunnels. And every time every time I go down, I'm encountering kind of kind of relics of of a, a past world. Um, and if, if you're in New York City, it, it might be just, you know, 30 or 40 years, but but in certain tunnels, I've found scraps of newspaper from the 1950s that that above ground would have um, would have rapidly deteriorated. But in you know caves and in, um, in in France or in Mesoamerica, I'm finding artifacts that are you know many thousands of years old uh, that have been preserved in this by the unique uh, conditions of the subterranean environment. Um, And I think that's, that for me, that was absolutely the uh, part of the magic of exploring underground where, where you slip through the mouth of a cave or a a manhole and you are entering a a kind of a past world. Like you're seeing the world as it, as it was before. Um, And I think of that as one of the, um the one of the great things that the underground can teach us um, you know throughout the history of science uh, great discoveries have been made by by digging into the earth obviously and and going into caves and finding bones of, of creatures that that um, that no longer exist and you know we we learned about evolution through um, so much of what we learned about evolution was was by going into these caves and finding finding fossilized skeletons. Um, and and, you know, as archaeologists, we've we've uh, uncovered all these um, extraordinary ancient cities that, that were you know, subterranean and we unearthed them. Um, so, yes, I think it's all about uh, making contact with with past worlds.
1: Yeah, you know, on the surface, you know, we have a, a way of tidying up, you know, we we, we sweep away the ephemera of, of previous generations or we incorporate them into our, our current lives. You know, maybe the, the number one underground attraction here in Kansas is Stratica, which are some old salt mines, and they display some Hollywood costumes and microfilms that are stored underneath there. But one of the biggest attractions for me was like garbage, like snow cone wrappers from the 1950s when it was still a salt mine. And this garbage has not deteriorated at all. That basically you can it's 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 a museum of several things, but one of it is like it has garbage from the 1930s and 1950s that is undeteriorated at all because underground in a salt mine, it doesn't it, there's no place to put it, there's no reason to clean it up and that was one fascinating thing. You know, I um, love that. Yeah, it's, it's worth visiting if you go to Kansas or if my listeners are interested. It's called Stratica, the old salt mines, uh, and it's worth the price of admission for sure, as are the catacombs. And it sounds like in uh, New York, um, urban exploring is fascinating as well. Um, but some of the things you explore in your book really aren't tourist accessible. For example, you went like a couple miles underground in the Black Hills of the Dakotas uh, to look at the idea, to explore the idea of organisms that live underground. And you bring in these ideas of, for example, John Sims, uh, who in the early 19th century wanted to start an, an expedition to explore the Earth underneath the crust. And it occurred to me that you know we nowadays we think of, in the science fiction sense, we think of outer space as this big possible repository of life. But by the at the end of the 19th century, as you say in your book. There were hundreds of novels that sort of depicted science fiction scenarios going on underneath the earth. So what did you discover when you went to the Black Hills and found that there were microorganisms living under the ground? So
0: I, uh, with this book, I wanted to explore you know, the, the, we, we think about the underground means so many different things to us simultaneously. It's like a place of death. It's a, it's a place of, of resurrection. It's a place of, of sort of spiritual journey. Um, it's a place where we're terrified of, but it's also a place of, of origin, um, in, in indigenous cultures throughout the world. We see, um, creation myths about that, that, that tell of, uh, the earliest ancestral beings emerging from, from deep beneath the earth. Um, and one of the, the, the sort of main, uh, sort of better known versions of that story is told by the, the Lakota people, um, whose homeland is the, the Black Hills in South Dakota. And they tell of a, of a cave there called Wind Cave, which is um, accessible to, to travelers. And the the story goes that their their earliest ancestral uh, forms of life um, germinated at the very bottom of that cave and slowly um, climbed to the surface and and uh, emerged in sunlight and that was how the, the first humans came into the world. Um, so I, I was fixated on that story and and as I was reading about that story, I discovered that there was a group of of scientists through NASA who were doing research in a mine um, that was about a half hour away from from Wind Cave. Um, It's an abandoned gold mine called Homestake. And at the very bottom of Homestake mine, which is uh, more than 5,000 feet underground, um, they were extracting samples uh, of water coming out of the walls, which contained these tiny microscopic creatures, um, just tiny uh, wriggling microbes that that were that are first of all uh, they appear all over the world. The 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 underground of you know our crust is is teeming with life in a way that most people don't recognize, but um, which is amazing in itself. But these particular creatures we connected to um, a, a theory that suggested that life began underground, that life did not begin in, uh, on the surfaces of, of a, a warm still ocean or a pond as, as people have said throughout the history of science, but perhaps began in the crust of the earth um, and took root deep underground and, and slowly, um, slowly migrated upwards and, and emerged on the surface. So it was this, this beautiful thing of finding that the, the local Native American community and these, these scientists at the bottom of a mine um, who were living in the same place were telling the same story just through slightly different modes.
1: Do you have do you have an opinion on on the idea of Earth starting in a pond on the top of the Earth versus Earth coming out from these deep organisms underneath the ground? And actually, as a corollary to that, what was it like to be two miles? What did, how did it feel to be 200, two miles underneath the surface of the Earth? Well,
0: so it was. So I should say that it was it was uh, just over a mile underground. Okay, and you absolutely could feel the you know you. <laughs> So the way it works is you get into a a, a big rattling elevator at, at surface level, and it rockets you down inside the earth. And you can see as you move through the different levels of this abandoned mine, you can see the kind of the empty empty tunnels rushing past you um, through the, the the open cage of the the elevator. And then finally you get down to the the base level. Um, and part of it, very surreally, is is a, a science lab, and you have physicists who are working in kind of fluorescently lit hallways, and and you know everything looks very normal. But if you go the other way, you're going into the wild parts of the mine, where things are not controlled, um, where there are no lights, and you can feel you can feel the heat, you can feel the pressure. It, it it's you can absolutely you actually start sweating. You I remember feeling like the the pressure uh, pressing down on my shoulders as I was uh, you know uh, descending into these these deep parts. Um, and as far as life beginning underground, I think it's you know the the science will take some time to bear out, but I think it's completely. It feels very natural to me. I think. Um, if you look through uh, stories we've been telling about about ourselves and about the, the origins of life, they they all come from from deep places. Um, the uh, I've talked to archaeologists in France who who have crawled into deep caves and found in the deepest part of a cave they've found uh, sculpted images of of vulva um, of, of vaginas, uh, showing that this, that the, the, the deep parts of the cave were the points of origin. We emerged from those parts. Um, and if you think about where we all come from, we all emerge from, um, a womb, a cave-like space and, and pass through, uh, a birth canal, which is a tunnel and emerge into sunlight. It, it just sounds to me, it feels very, uh, it feels logical. It feels emotionally true. Um, And I love the science of sort of catching up with
1: that. Yeah, you know, you're talking about vulva inside caves. You also found a a clay bison, which is actually very well made. There's a picture of it in the book. That's like 14,000 years old. Um, And you talk a lot about the the sort of the spiritual energy, for lack of a better word, that can be found in these underground places. And uh, you yourself spend some time... Underneath the ground in West Virginia, uh, what was that experience like, and how has the spiritual aspect of caves and underground spaces manifested itself through history?
0: So, you mentioned West Virginia. I, I undertook this this strange little experiment um, where I include enclosed myself in a in a the dark zone of a cave. Scientists refer to the the space beyond the um, the, the reach of diffuse light in a cave as the dark zone. So I, I enclosed myself in the dark zone of a cave in West Virginia for 24 hours um, just to see, I was interested in seeing how my, my body and mind would would react. Uh, so I've been reading about uh, a scientist in France named Michel Sif um, who was known as the Jacques Cousteau of the underground. And he had done these experiments um, throughout the course of his career, where he would uh, descend into a cave and and stay down there alone um, without any like watch or calendar or any any time telling device. And he was interested in finding the what he called the original rhythm of man. So I had been reading about about Sif's um, experiences in in, you know, prolonged stays in the dark zone and which is super curious. Uh, his, these trips seemed like they were getting at something much deeper than just our biorhythms. He was his, his the journals he kept um, of describing these experiences were sort of full of sort of psychological aberrations where he would see and hear things that weren't present. Um, and I was just, I was curious to see what would happen to me if I did a admittedly uh, abbreviated version of one of these trips. Um, so I went and spent a night, um, or a, a full day in a, a cave in, in West Virginia. And I, I had the very strange experience of, of beginning to hallucinate. Um, I started seeing, it wasn't anything terribly dramatic, but I started to see these uh, kind of glowing orbs floating above me in the cave. And and as it turns out, um, this is an experience described by, by people throughout history, um, generally shamans and prophets and seers who would enclose themselves in caves for long periods of time. And they would uh, begin to to hallucinate, as we would say in, in uh, sort of the modern Western world, they would um, make contact with, with spirits and deities and, and the inhabitants of the, the other world. Um, And what, what, what I loved was that, you know, my, in, in my sort of modern Western worldview, I wasn't making contact with, with any other world, the, being but deep in that cave I sort of had my body was reacting in a kind of reflexive way where I you know I had um, I suddenly had no no sensory input um, and my brain started filling in the gaps and it was it was reacting to, to being in this totally alien space and and, you know, it, it, it depends on how you think about it. But, but I was having the same biological experience as, as these shamans and prophets and seers throughout history. Um, and we find versions of that story in every religious tradition in the world. Um, Elijah first speaks to God in the depths of a cave. Um, uh, Muhammad first speaks to Allah in a cave in Saudi Arabia. The Greek and Roman prophets and oracles always resided in caves. Um, so it was it was cool to, to to feel myself in in this deep sort of spiritual tradition um, in in this the the depths of this cave in West Virginia.
1: Have you heard of Gregory of Nyssa, the 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 Christian Orthodox? Um, I'm not sure if he's a saint or a scholar or what. Um, he actually said. That God is darkness. There's this idea that God is light. He said that God is darkness in the sense that He's extrasensory. You know that that um, we do not experience God through the senses, but through something more. I don't know a lot about Gregory of Nyssa, but I do remember that quote of his from college.
0: I love that. I, I have heard his name. Um, I, I hadn't heard that quote, but that's that makes so much sense. And if you if you look through the Old Testament, there are constant references to. To God being he who, who lives in the depths, he who lives in darkness, um, you know, the, the uh, stories of, of um, revelation are always, always about people um, making contact with something in darkness and, and something emerging from darkness. Um, so it totally makes sense.
1: It's interesting that you bring up, and correct me if, I, if I'm paraphrasing this wrong, but sort of like the idea that labyrinths in human cultures have been built or maintained as sort of disorientation machines, as opportunities for people to go down and to basically be lost for spiritual purposes.
0: As I mentioned, um, when you're going into a cave, your your entire navigational apparatus in your mind is shut off. Um, and it, it, it kind of opens you up to these, these experiences that, that you wouldn't, uh, normally access. Uh, and, and I, I found that, that, um, labyrinths throughout history, um, are, are built to, to create that same form of, of disorientation. Um, if you you know go to the cathedral and shocked for example you will find a, a labyrinth uh tiled into the floor where people would would walk in circles as a way of of uh simulating the journey to to the holy land um and the more i you know that's a two-dimensional labyrinth um it's just it's you can just see it on the floor but as i studied the history of labyrinths i found that that the, the further back in history you go, the, the the higher the walls are and you go back a little bit further and suddenly all these labyrinths are underground. Um, the The oldest labyrinths we have are all subterranean spaces. Um, I have this theory that is that is you know difficult to prove but but makes sense to me, which is that that the earliest iterations of labyrinths were were deep winding caves where, people on on spiritual errands, spiritual journeys would would uh, descend underground and kind of lose themselves in the dark, and in so doing, open themselves up to some kind of larger spiritual calling.
1: Well, I'm sure my listeners have, have now learned more about underground travel, as it were, than they had ever considered was possible. Um one what's the argument for going underground for exploring underground and getting to know it a little bit better and where should people start
0: there's there's the the physical act of going underground and and most people will say like I don't want to go into a sewer I don't you know I'm scared of caves which is fine I I would say that that going into a cave and spending some time there is something that will completely change the way you think about yourself and the world But, you know, I tend to be biased and kind of an evangelist for for darkness. And and I know that not everyone's into that. What I tell my um, my my writing students is that that going underground is works as a metaphor, too. It's about it's about looking beneath the surface of the familiar and finding finding things that you don't expect that are that are magical and and it's about opening yourself up to wonder um I, i i just in my in my experience uh it was it started in in providence rhode island and finding this abandoned train tunnel that ran beneath my house and as a result of that experience i believe that the world has felt larger and more mysterious and more full of wonder for me when I have kids, I'm going to send them on, on tunnel excursions and, and we'll change their life.
1: <laughs> this has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Will Hunt's book, Underground, A Human History of the World's Beneath Our Feet, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Vetteman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.